Okay, uh, today we are going to talk about a relatively hot topic. We're going to talk about conspiracy theories, the history of conspiracy theories, what are conspiracy theories and how they're connecting to today. Uh, my name is Eleftheria, thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to have a talk with Jack Ferguson, who is going to introduce himself shortly. Hi, hi, I'm Jack as well. You're listening to Radical Animals. And we're going to talk about conspiracy theories today, particularly in the context of what's been happening this year with the coronavirus and how that's impacted on people's willingness to believe in conspiracy theories and how a lot of new conspiracy theories have grown up around the pandemic. Okay, so I think the first thing we need to talk about if we're going to talk seriously about conspiracy theories is what do we mean and kind of define our terms because... Um, everyone's first reaction is, of course, you know, powerful people do take part in secret schemes, conceal things from people, cause harm to others for their own advantage. Stuff like that is real. It really happens. And we also know that conspiracy theorists can be used as a slur or a label to delegitimize a political opinion you don't agree with, to kind of write it off as not rational. So how can we tell the difference when we're hearing something between something that is legitimately possible and is probably, you know, could be some proper research into something really going on and what is a conspiracy theory. Um, so Robert Guffey, who's uh, an academic who studied conspiracy theories in America, puts them into five categories um, to illustrate how different kinds of people engage with conspiracy theories for different reasons. So his first one is insanity. Um, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that language, but maybe we could say people who are seriously experiencing some kind of delusions, um, you know, who are believing things for reasons of their mental health that are clearly not real. That is um, something that has clearly happened to some prominent figures within the world of conspiracy theories. Um, when you hear their kind of narratives of how they came to be where they are, you, you know, you have reason to be concerned about how able they are to perceive what's really going on. Then there's people who have um, found disinformation, been exposed to disinformation, which is basically like powerful actors, states, organisations, putting out stories or trying to create ideas of what's going on, which are not accurate, but which then confuse people, make people um, unsure of what's going on and can maybe conceal what they are really doing as well. I mean, the, the, the classic one that many people argue is the case is that <clears throat> a lot of UFO mythology or UFO law in the US, um, whatever may be really going on, a large part of it is fostered by the government itself in order to distract people from what they are doing in terms of military research and the Air Force and whatever. Um, I saw a meme that kind of put this one um, really well because it it it's almost kind of loops in on itself where it said that like wait until the conspiracy theorists hear that they're part of a conspiracy to spread conspiracy theorists theories in order to conceal real conspiracies basically um it's a very useful technique you can use if you are propaganda on behalf of a government <clears throat> to try and um get people convinced of a not real story so they they're not able to really engage with what's really going on then there's misinformation, which is just people getting wrong information, being wrongly informed about stuff. It's slightly different from the kind of um, 
definite intent behind disinformation. Um, and then you have satire and legitimate research. So satire, I think, you know, a lot of people engage with conspiracy theories on a level that they don't take them fully seriously. Um, and they're kind of doing it for fun. You know, they think it's funny. They enjoy hearing the stories um, without taking them too seriously. Or particularly, they think it's funny to confuse other people and to enjoy themselves knowing it's not true, but to see other people fall for it. I think um, we've seen in the last few years, you know, the massive, uh, unprecedented, unbelievable growth of the belief that the Earth is flat and not a globe, which um, has spread to a degree and to people that, you know, you would never have thought possible a few years ago. And I think a portion of that, certainly online, um, is is people that don't seriously mean it. But they think it's very funny that, that flat Earth will grow to that degree. Um, and they also think it's good if um, the idea of what's really going on is kind of broken down and people are confused and, um, you know, you can't believe in a sort of consensus version of reality. You can do that by fostering all types of stories at once to keep people really confused about what's real. And the success of Flat Earth shows you that it doesn't even have to be, you know, that conventionally a believable story. It can be something that seems totally wild. And then finally, you've got um, legitimate research, which is where we get into like journalists, academics, people really looking into what states big corporations are doing um, and try to find real secret plots, real things that are going on. Um, and the difficulty of that, I think, you know, is that, yeah, um, conspiracy theories, as we'll see in a moment, kind of thrive on um, an idea that there's one controlling overall evil and that you can really ascribe everything bad that's going on to whoever is behind the particular conspiracy story you believe. And I think one of the key differences with legitimate research is that um, it recognises that the, the reasons things are going on are very complex. And while there are maybe people or organisations that are doing bad things, there's not one overall in control and it's necessary to double check what you're doing, to check the accuracy of what you're saying, try and verify facts rather than just kind of create a story that you want to believe and then find the information and the facts and the evidence to fit that story. So from what I'm hearing about those five categories, it almost sounds that the origins of the conspiracy theories can be polar opposite. So you do have this information that it is intended to confuse the audience, but you also have satire, like the conspiracy about the earth being flat, which is almost trolling, is trying to create a false narrative. Um, would you say that the origins of the conspiracy theory can be malicious or non-malicious. Yeah, I, I think that the origins of things, you know, like there's diverse different people that start for different reasons or stories come about from different reasons. But I think what I'll come on to in a minute is when it's organised into, you know, really like a movement, then there's often, there's usually some politics behind it. There's usually some politics behind the people that are really responsible for spreading those ideas, whether those politics are like immediately clear to everyone that gets involved in the movement or they fully understand 
the implications or what the intentions are of people spreading that story um, is a different matter. But I think there's definitely, there's people who truly believe in the stories that they're spreading. And then I think there's a lot of people involved in this world for really cynical reasons. Like for really, um, they know that creating stories like this um, and emotionally working people up around them is a way to manipulate people and to control people, both politically and to get people towards your own political ideology, but also just to make money off people. Like if you go on any conspiracy theory website, um, you know, the big prominent ones, they'll have down the side a whole suite of specifically tailored products, you know, alternative health products, survivalist products, um, not to mention all the merchandise that, that spreads whatever message or story that you're buying into. And a lot of prominent conspiracy theory, um, celebrity kind of people that spread them are themselves, you know, they have a financial interest in people believing these stories. It, it's also a way to exploit people, make them into a market. So it's almost like somebody creates a need and then they come and like cover this need by creating like products that people are going to consume in order to stay safe. Yeah, I, I think conspiracy theories definitely meet a need in people. I think they arise because the world is, is super, super confusing um, and unexpected and unpredictable events do happen regularly that completely upend your sense of what's going to happen and, and what's possible. And that's that's got more frequent in recent years. And I think there's reasons that we could understand why that is to do with like um, the economy and capitalism in crisis, the environment problems, you know, longstanding historical social problems. But it takes quite a lot of work, you know, to be able to get your head around that. It takes studying a few different things um, and it's complicated. And so it's difficult, you know, when access to education and access to useful media is not easy. Um, you're trying to understand what's going on. Conspiracy theories reply to that need with a story, which is like a natural human way to react, to, to try and make sense of what's going on, is to try and create a narrative and work out who are the actors in this narrative. And it's much simpler to try and explain what's going on in the world in terms of there are a definite group of people with evil intentions who are doing who are behind all the bad stuff then the bad stuff is partly the result of bad people but you know it's mostly kind of diffuse long-term structural causes that that work on people and put them in the position that they're in and that there's no one overall superpower that is in charge of everything going on in the world and able to control the world to that degree but um, it also, you know, it rationalizes powerlessness, like experience of modern society is that, you know, democracy has been hollowed out, your able, ability to influence your life and make things better has been substantially removed. Um, and if you're trying to explain why that is, um, it, it makes it a lot more copable with and emotionally able to be rationalized. If you can say, well, this is because of an overwhelming, you know, almost unfightable power, which really has this much control over everything in the world, that they can completely confuse people about what's going on. They can direct the news and make up stuff that's false um, and people will just believe it. I mean, if you think, you know, like 9-11 being an inside job, you know, the classic one, like how many thousands of people would have to be involved in that operation um, and 
how many people now would still, you know, going on 20 years later, have to be keeping that secret. Um, another meme I saw about this that I thought was, uh, put it quite accurately, is they think that many people involved in conspiracy theories have never worked in any kind of project management because they are based on an idea that, you know, large organizations can execute operations of this nature with like absolute complete seamlessness and never being found out. It, you know, wh when you work in any kind of large organization, you pretty realize that they don't work like that. <laughs> so we looked there at the five categories that Robert Guffey has come up with for reasons why people might engage with conspiracy theories. We're talking today mainly not about ones that are legitimate research or real attempts to understand what the government's doing or what co corporations are doing, but are really about false ideas that have come about in people's heads um, or have been deliberately fostered there by other people for their own reasons. Um, so if we take that, that's what we're classifying as conspiracy theories, false ideas, um, then there's another good kind of way of breaking them down, which comes for the Centre for Climate Change Communication, who produced a little booklet called the Climate Change Handbook. And in there, they've got an acronym called CONSPIR, um, which basically each letter of it breaks down to illustrate a different aspect of conspiracy theories about false information, conspiracy theories that are kind of ideological rather than a serious attempt to understand what's going on. So if we look at each of those, the first one C is contradictory. And it's basically that many conspiracy theories contain all types of contradictory elements and things that don't seem to make sense added up to each other. Um, but that doesn't distract people. Like that, um, in fact, just contributes to the overall sense of that there's something mysterious going on and that they need to get to the bottom of it. And if you are hearing a narrative that's alleging something about what's going on in the world where you think, mm, well, that part doesn't make sense with that part, it's a good sign that maybe it's a, a conspiracy theory idea rather than a serious idea about what's really happening. Then you've got O, overriding suspicion. And that's basically um, the sense that you can't really trust any information that you suspect, you know, comes from like a mainstream source. So nothing that's like academic journals, regular newspapers, stuff like that is really, that is the the voice of the people behind the conspiracy. So something that would give it more weight to many people, it being in some kind of legitimate venue or publication, is actually a reason to write it off. And the only place to look for information is in sources that will confirm the story that you're already committed to. Then we've got N for nefarious intent. And that's basically, I think I, I mentioned already, the idea that there really is an overwhelming, all-powerful evil force in the world. You know, whether you think that's the Illuminati, um, whether you think that's some kind of intelligence agency or aliens or whatever it is, there's some force that is the reason why bad things happen in the world. It's kind of like, it goes back to religion, really. It's an answer to the question of like, how do you explain evil? Is that there are, there's a force of evil, there's some kind of the devil who's responsible, who's bringing it about. Um, and again, you know, like, I think it's important to emphasize, you know, like conspiracies, real conspiracies do happen and people do really, really bad things in secret. But the difference I think between this worldview and a legitimate kind of research worldview would be a recognition that the evil that there is in the world is not unified. 
and the sources of power are various around the world. There's not one force that's in control of everything, and there's not one agency that can explain every bad thing that happens or every unexpected thing that happens. The the reasons and the causes behind stuff are really, really complicated, and you have to look at lots of different factors rather than being able to come up with one single person you can pin it all on. Uh, then you've got something must be wrong. And that's, again, what I was saying about the sense of uncertainty about what's happening in the world. Like, we're living through periods of rapid change in all types of ways. Um, and it leaves people deeply unsettled, you know, for good and bad reasons. But, you know, for many reasons that are concrete impacts on their life, making it much, much worse, that they don't understand why it's happening. So you have this general sense of there's something going on, um, things are changing, and I don't understand why. Um, and that, you know, in the absence of having access to all the information that might help you to understand all the reasons why these things are happening in your life, it just leaves you with this kind of diffuse suspicion, you know, of um, something must be wrong. And then you're open to conspiracy-based narratives that try and blame uh, a specific evil force. Then we've got P for persecuted victim. Um, and that's basically a lot of conspiracy narratives, you know, they they really rely on um, quite imaginative descriptions of the evil of what's going on. So a lot of stories will, you know, show you how evil the the evildoers in the story are by really saying they, they will torture people, they'll murder people. Um, the QAnon conspiracy that we're going to talk about a little bit later on is really fueled by quite graphic and disturbing descriptions or depictions of violence and, and abuse of children. Um, so it kind of thrives off activating, like basically traumatizing people, you know, like traumatizing people through a story to the point where they are committed to that narrative and to pursuing, you know, uh, stopping the people who are evil who are behind this. It, it bonds people into the community of the conspiracy by traumatizing them. Um, and it also kind of activates people on a on a visceral disgust rage level, you know, like it um, scapegoating or othering, you know, another group. Like, for example, racist or anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that we're going to talk about, um, really making people believe that um, these these evil forces that the story is talking about, you know, are a real physical danger, especially to children or others seen as kind of innocent. And it's also the persecuted victim one is there because it's also about how the conspiracy theorists themselves or the believer in this story relates to those around them or people in their lives that might argue with them or disagree with the story. That then just becomes proof of, you know, kind of how powerful um, the conspiracy is. And it feeds their sense that they are some kind of special and unique person that has a special insight into what's going on and that they're being persecuted by the conspiracy and by people around them as a result. I mean, I certainly know we'll, we'll talk at the end about kind of advice for people. If you are in that situation, you have someone in your life that you want to speak to about this. But what I learned from my own experience, um, you know, people in my life having problems with their mental health, or maybe they believe things that clearly are not real and you know are not real, um, and I've tried to argue with people about that, and it's really the the wrong thing to do. Like when someone's really 
committed to something seriously that's that's quite a delusion if you make yourself the person that's trying to debunk it then you're going to put yourself at the center of their beliefs because you are putting yourself forward as as the person that's conflicting with what how they understand about what's going on so it has to be approached very carefully because approaching people the wrong way will just feed this sense that they're being persecuted by by evil forces um i is for immune to evidence and that's basically similar to what I was saying about the total discrediting of, you know, mainstream sources or whatever. It's basically any contradictory or anything you could put forward that's like, okay, well, here's a problem with your story, but what about this? That doesn't count. You know, the only evidence that's ever consumed or is useful for a conspiracy theorist is you, is evidence that confirms a story. And that's a really clear way you can tell the difference between someone that is building a conspiracy theory story and someone that's doing legitimate research about what's going on. Is a legitimate researcher will be open to the possibility that they're wrong, will be open to the possibility that, you know, what they thought at the start is not what actually is going on. Basically, they'll take account of all the evidence that they come across. So it's a completely different approach to the type of research and the type of information you take on. Um, if if you're trying to build a conspiracy story, then anything that contradicts it is just put to the side. It doesn't matter. You discount it. Um, and then the last one is R for reinterpreting randomness. And that goes again, you know, to what I was saying about unexpected things happen all the time. You know, the coronavirus um, kind of came on everyone seemingly almost overnight. You know, it was in a, in a state of a a week or two that we started talking about the need to lock down and then it was happening. Um, or assassin the assassination of John F. Kennedy, you know, like whatever the accuracy behind that, many people found it impossible to believe that one person would be responsible for such an important historical event. Um, so the fact is things do happen that are unpredictable and that are just the result of completely unexpected things in the world. Um, but if you're a conspiracy theorist and you believe that the world is controlled by an all-powerful, um, evil controlling force, then it's not really possible for things to just happen by accident. There are no accidents. Everything that happens that seems odd or hard to explain is further evidence, ah, this is the people that we already know are behind everything. They're behind this as well. And I mean, today we're talking about these things in particularly in the context of the coronavirus. The coronavirus is, you know, the best example you could ever want of this, basically, that um, such an unexpected and confusing thing has affected the whole world in such a short period of time. It's to be expected that many people can't understand that and need to explain it with stories. What are really the stages for somebody to end up believing and defending a conspiracy theory. I guess for many people, the internet is the only source for finding answers. However, how does somebody end up engaging in conspiratory thinking? Well, I think, you know, like I said, people come up with these things spontaneously and there's a lot of events that you look, I mean, again, the assassination of President Kennedy, like... Um, I, was, I keep thinking you're going to say the assassination of Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> 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 like yeah. Every time, I'm like, spicy. I, I guess how somebody from, like, being a person who's curious about how corona came up 
they don't know anything about viruses as like most of us don't know anything about viruses ends up like making this theory or following this theory about you know it came out of a lab it's here to like control us how do people like go through this process cognitively in a sense well i think yeah i think a lot of people it happens spontaneously or it happens naturally you know event like the coronavirus or like the assassination of president kennedy for example like it seems so um unbelievable like it, the the story of what happened naturally lends it to many people um saying ah there must be something else to it i mean um we mentioned it a minute ago jeffrey epstein and you know i i also have no idea of the full story of what happened there but the story of him committing suicide to many people seems so unbelievable compared to they're like well but there are all these forces against him so surely there must be something more to that story so it happens spontaneously for a lot of people but then i think when it comes to it becoming more organized um, and people promoting it in a, an organized way online building a platform around these kind of stories then i think it's it's always political um yes like in an organized way modern conspiracy theories i i think are usually about ultimately on some level reinforcing a particular ideological view of the world and they do arise spontaneously in amongst all types of people and there are conspiracy theories that i think are conspiracy theories of the left but by and large i would say the political force behind them is the right and like conspiracy theories are basically like the lingua franca of the far right they provide an alternative um for people who um don't want to use kind of class analysis social science left wing kind of ways of analyzing the world to go okay how can we find out who are the other scapegoated groups that we're going to make responsible um and i think like many people indeed you know will come to things kind of spontaneously or because of their own suspicions and because of um natural suspicion that does arise in people rightly because of indeed all the real things that happen the things that are really concealed from us the things that we found out that were kept secret for many years stuff like that um but when they encounter something that's really getting them organized and trying to create a big detailed narrative about okay these are the evil forces that are responsible then there's usually there's usually somebody behind that you know with their own motivations um which as i said again are about moving people manipulating people towards their position you know either for politically to get them into their ideology and or also to make money out of them to financially or whatever other way exploit them yeah so i would always you know make a distinction i guess between people engaging with conspiracy theories kind of on an entry level or because they're confused and looking for answers and you know the people that really make a career out of being a conspiracy theorist um the people that build platforms the people that produce conspiracy theory media on a large scale um usually i think by and large that is something that relates to right wing politics um and when you see kind of conspiracy ideas on the left again i'm not saying there's n- there's none and that left wing people are incapable of doing falling into these same kind of traps of thinking and kind of cognitive biases but often you see that um right wing conspiracy ideas or um right wing tropes and stories um 
they they their ways to kind of get away into left wing people. And I think that's something that's happening right now around the coronavirus and QAnon. Like so many people in my life, everyone I've spoken to about this tells me a story about someone who they're shocked is part of QAnon. Like is someone close to them in their life who they never thought would um, be part of a movement like this and generally, you know, has quite a sound outlook on the world and generally are quite progressive, good people who want to do the right thing, who have been drawn in by this story. Um, and again, it kind of does that, you know, by by hitting people in places where it will, will traumatise them, in places that disturb them. And I think many, many people um, are attracted towards these kind of stories because they have experienced abuse, harm, you know, like mistreatment at the hands of authority figures, the state, um, schools, you know, institutions, things like that. And so it naturally kind of leaves them with the not um, unsensible um, assumption that, you know, large institutions, powerful forces are out to do harm to people. It is proof of a base and low mind for one to wish to think with the masses or the majority, merely because the majority is the majority. Truth does not change because it is or is not believed by a majority of the people. Right. Beep, beep, feels right. 
short. What he does the truth for being correct, for being you. Never apologize for being correct or being years ahead of your time. If you're right and you know it, speak your mind, speak your mind. Even if you are in a minority of one, the truth is still the truth. Um, so, conspiracy stories, um, they go through constant repackaging and rebranding. Like, conspiracy theorists are the original masters of our current kind of reboot culture because they keep bringing the same stories back generation after generation with kind of different features change slightly. Um, and the story about some overwhelming overall evil force, the Illuminati or some cabal controlling the world, the, the origins of that story really are anti-Semitism. And like the core, why I said, you know, the core of a lot of these movements goes back to the far right is because it's a very old idea, I guess, in European society, going back to even kind of pre-modern medieval times to make Jews like the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong in the world. You know, in, in medieval times, in the plague, it was a common belief amongst Christians that the plague was caused by Jews poisoning the wells, for example. Um, and you contrast that now to the belief that the coronavirus is happening because Chinese government made it in a lab as a bioweapon. It's a similar sort of idea, like something is happening that we can't understand. In both cases, in this case, a disease, you know, something kind of microbiological that really you can't see it and you can't, you know, understand what it is without detailed scientific knowledge. It's much simpler to go, okay, who did this to me? You know, who's responsible? Um, and the traditional answer um, by powerful forces for a long time in European history has been to scapegoat people who aren't responsible in order to um, deflect blame from people who really are powerful and really in charge. And the anti-Semitic story, it goes from them through, particularly the French Revolution, I think is um, a time that historically disturbed um, what we would now think of right-wing people, obviously the terms left and right kind of come from the French Revolution. But people who were against the French Revolution and were disturbed that the old regime was kind of being destroyed in Europe after that, they couldn't, um, you know, they weren't part of the story that explained that in terms of this is good, this is progress, this is people rising up because of oppression or things like that. So they had to think, again, who's responsible? Who has done this? Um, and that's the kind of origins of ideas about the Illuminati or some kind of hidden force politically directing the world so that all political events are actually part of some kind of secret plan to move the world to some kind of state where those people have utter and total control. And, you know, that those, you know, the Illuminati, I'm using that term now because many people know that from common conspiracy theories now, but in the middle of the 20th century, world Jewry, um, Judeo-Bolshevism, like these terms were used for the same thing, you know. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, there's a forged document um, that was made up by the Russian secret police to stigmatise Jews and to blame Jews for everything going on in the world called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, where it kind of depicts um, fantastical images of Jewish people ruling the world and directing everything that happens and also being responsible again for... 
um, horrible abuse of children for their own sadistic reasons and to en enhance their own power, which is a story we've seen again and is is very much being pushed right now. Um, and that's it's less easy to talk in those terms directly about Jews or other kind of racialized others in the modern world, or it has been for the last few years, certainly since the Second World War. Um, so conspiracy theories have rebranded, you know, and, and they've recast the same kind of basic villain. They've given them a different face, a kind of sci-fi face um, or a different kind of historical name, um, you know, rebranded them as like aliens or interdimensional lizards. But far right people who engage with these stories and who spread these stories, to them, it's kind of a dog whistle. Like they know who they mean. Um, and... If you can, again, if you can kind of confuse people and draw people in who might not be open to that message straight away, but you start with a story about something else that isn't Jews or a group of people, then again, you can, conf many people will engage with these kind of stories. And when you say, look, at the core of this is anti-Semitism, they'll be like, what? You know, like, I don't understand. We don't talk about Jews. I don't have any problem with Jews. But they don't understand that the story is, the story is an old story that's been perpetuated for people by a reason and is being spread now by people for a reason. And it's, again, you know, the far-right alternative to explaining the world in terms of capitalism, classes, social science, is to go, there's a group of people. It's the other races, it's the bad races that are responsible for all the problems. Um, and so that's why I think anti-Semitism is, is absolutely core to understanding all these stories in all their shapes and forms going back to medieval times. It's a long, long tradition in Europe to be like, we don't understand, and, you know, European descended societies around the world to go, we don't understand what's going on. We're, we're going to blame some outsider group. Um, so I think, why is it happening particularly now? Why are we seeing such growth in conspiracy theories? Um, obviously, this year... There's the context of the coronavirus, but I think even before then, we were seeing, you know, pretty unprecedented growth in belief in things that before would have been considered really marginal and would have been really a minority of people that believe them. Um, I mean, the long campaign of anti-vaccination conspiracy theories, even before this pandemic, had already had a serious impact on how many people were willing to take part in vaccinations leading to outbreaks of preventable diseases in countries like the US, in developed countries where there was no reason why it should be happening, other than that people had suspicion of um, the medical system that was trying to vaccinate them against it. Um, that, as an example, that's an example of, you know, how it was growing. We already talked as well about flat earth. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw around here where I live in rural Scotland, people putting up flat earth graffiti, that the movement had spread to that degree. And it, it naturally kind of indeed, you know, we're laughing about it now, but how how is it possible? How How is it possible that that's such a movement? Um, so I think there's a number of different factors apart from if we take apart from the, the current situation with the pandemic. One of them is the complete collapse and delegitimization of the traditional media who in previous decades would have kind of authoritatively established a consensus version of the truth and told people what it was. And that's been discredited for good and bad reasons. I mean, it's been discredited indeed because people are, I guess, more aware of the way that propaganda influences news, the way that 
governments or um, powerful organisations try to influence and manipulate the user gender and keep certain things out of the headlines and promote other things. So they're aware of that. But there's also just a huge problem that the media has faced the same kind of neoliberal onslaught in the last 20, 30 years as all other industries. Um, big corporations have took over all media outlets um, and ruthlessly kind of rationalised them and cut them to the bone because they're not primarily interested in representing what's really going on, establishing the truth um, and getting people the news. They're interested in profit. They're interested in stories that will definitely get people's attention, no matter of their accuracy. And people working in journalism, you know, as I said, have faced huge, huge cuts. There's far fewer journalists covering all levels of power now, ultimately, than there were in the past. Um, and the result of that is that people in power know they're under less scrutiny and corruption is rampant and people are running wild with doing all kinds of unacceptable things. Um, and there just isn't the capacity there to investigate that and for people to understand it. You know, and a lot of people talk about how it's good that that's gone, that we can all now um, go to the internet, do our own research, understand what's really going on. And I think things about that are progress and are better. It's better that we don't have one voice that tells us what the truth is and everyone believes. But it doesn't negate the fact that we're seeing now that the world is too complicated for most people. Like it, being a journalist or an academic or a researcher really is a job. It's really a job that you need to do a lot of work to do it well. And a normal person trying to understand uh, really complex things going on in the world, they don't have time you know, for that amount of work. Um, and you can't expect people to be able to do that on their own. We do still have a need for people who are able to do some research and then summarize that in a way that they can explain it to people, you know, without them then having to go, okay, I have to read 10 scientific papers and X, Y, and Z before I even have an approach on what's going on. And we really don't have that. You know, we, we have a media that um, that capacity has been largely removed and it's hugely focused on um, less things that matter and more things that will get people's attention, people, things that will stimulate people or make them angry or make them excited. You know, it, it's that's the priority rather than establishing what's going on in reality. Then I think you've also got um, what Adam Curtis, the documentary filmmaker, he made a little short film called Hypernormalization, which I think you can find on YouTube if you search for it. And it's about how in Russia, um, under Putin, the government there, established a governing strategy of deliberately trying to confuse people by doing all kinds of contradictory things at once. Um, and by funding opponents, by funding all types of political forces, social organisations that, you know, some of them were against the government, some of them were for the government, had all different kinds of positions, and then making sure people knew that was going on to the point where you're like, right, I really can't, how can you even make sense of what's happening politically or in reality or in the news? And he makes the point in that film that that's something that's been generalised, I think, to many other countries. Um, it's very clearly part of the approach of the Trump administration in America to bombard people with confusing or bizarre statements and information to the point where no one can really get a handle on what's really happening. So I think there's that. There's a deliberately fostered confusion um, from people who are 
you know, engaging in conspiracies or doing harmful things in order to confuse people about what's really going on. And then obviously, you know, you can't extract this, I think, from the rise of the far right globally, like how we've seen the growth of the far right in the 21st century in many, many countries, including um, hard right authoritarian nationalist leaders coming to power in many major countries um, and having control of the state there. And certainly the growth of extreme right media platforms, social media platforms, um, internet outlets to spread their message. Um, we're living in a time where, where they're quite successful. Um, and if we think that um, conspiracy theories are really part of their meat and drink of how they understand the world and how they make sense of things for people, then it's natural that if we're seeing a growth of those kind of political forces, the narratives that they promote are going to be stronger and more people are going to be exposed to those stories and they're going to seem more credible. We're at now, which is um, the QAnon conspiracy theory, which we'll talk about in a minute, but that is kind of like an all-encompassing bumper edition of conspiracy theories where everything is included. So everything I'm about to say now kind of is also included under the rubric of QAnon, as we'll talk about in a minute. But the first, um, the first kind of big wave of conspiracy theories I think we saw when the coronavirus first became news is the idea that it's a hoax, you know, it's not that bad, this has been made up um, for reasons of political control, for reasons, for other nefarious reasons that are not about what it initially appears. Um, and I think this one really relates a lot to the disinformation um, category when we were looking at Robert Guffey's five kind of breakdown of different conspiracy theories because there's a lot in this one that I think has to do with the position of right-wing governments and certainly to do just with the position of businesses, you know, employers, people who stood to lose money out of the pandemic is many of those reacted to um, this situation with they didn't want to have lockdowns. They didn't want to shut down the economy. They really didn't want to interrupt making money and accumulation, you know, for that, for one day, never mind the amount of time it has actually taken this year. And there's an extreme pro-work ideology behind that, you know, where work is the most important thing in society. Workers are the most important people and everyone who isn't working or isn't contributing in that way is a burden on everyone else. It's a kind of eugenic mindset, really, that that sees, you know, productive people as important and others as like, really a waste of time and not people that should be taken seriously. I mean, this was said most explicitly and most kind of crudely by the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, who um, famously came out earlier in the outbreak to say that older people would rather die than let COVID-19 harm the US economy and that grandparents would happily give their lives so that there would be an economy and jobs and money for their younger family. Um, and it shows, you know, that there's something there, I think, about a really extreme commitment to the existing way of doing the economy, where that's more important than human lives. Um, and, you know, we've seen that off, off many, off the British government in its reluctance initially to lock down, certainly off right-wing governments in the US, including the president, but down through states as well, um, that refused to um, take this seriously. Um, and I think... I, I want to do more research on this and come back to this as a, as a longer topic because I really feel we need to understand and kind of unpack how much is that 
about a commitment to constantly making money and keeping the economy rolling? And how much is that about really quite a brutal eugenic view of society that maybe you saw expressed um, through terms like herd immunity? You know, the idea that what is better is to just let the virus rip throughout society and then those that survive will be immune. You know, implicit in that is a discounting of the people who will not make it. You know, it's like the people who will die are a legitimate price to pay for our economy. And so it's 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 a delegitimizing of anyone who is more vulnerable, who's more likely to um, be seriously impacted by COVID-19. And, you know, unsurprisingly, that's often a lot of groups that these political forces don't like, whether that's disabled people, people with long-term health conditions, who are unable to work, who are unable to, in their view, contribute economically. Also, we've seen the disproportionate impact, you know, on poorer people and especially on racialized minorities, black people, Native American people in the US um, had a hugely disproportionate impact from COVID-19. And I don't think that the far right is too unhappy about that, you know? So, yeah, where where the, the line lies between those two, I think, needs a bit more research from us. That is actually a really good point, Jack. I feel that at the beginning of the outbreak, the British government stressed out how important it was to keep the economy going. They insisted on herd immunity from the virus so the economy would run uninterrupted. Their initial hesitation to shut down the economy came against the reality which actually forced them to implement the lockdown and put people on the furlough job retention scheme. This was of course a forced move caused by the mounting death toll and the threat of hospital intensive care units being overwhelmed. The furlough scheme was something opposite to the normal character of the welfare system, which has a long history rewarding those so-called deserving. Dating back to the Victorian era, people in Britain were reduced to those who were worth of the support of the state and those who were not. This is very well reflected into the benefit system with the DWP slogan, making work pay. Even though many workers were put in it, There were loopholes that excluded freelance workers, artists, etc. Now, into the lockdown, again, we see that there is a clear division of the working working people who would work securely and those who would have to work in the front line, go to work with no clear safety guidance and no introduction of the PP equipment, which came way later. Now, As we enter the new reality, where the furlough scheme is winding down, we see the dichotomy of those deserving and undeserving of state support is coming back. People who are frontline workers, like bus drivers, carers, supermarket workers, are not necessarily able to work from home, while office workers and managerial staff are able to better protect themselves by remote working. One would argue that working the frontline is necessary due to the nature of the job. However, we can see that those people are more affected by an outbreak while their efforts have not been recognized financially with wage rises and guidelines that set the workers as priority. 
Instead, it seems more and more that safety is a solely personal responsibility where workers need to be alert and protect themselves. I think that's a really good point that you made there, Lefteria, about the welfare system, because indeed um, my suspicion that eugenic thinking is part of this um, from right-wing governments, certainly in the UK, is influenced by our experience with the welfare system over the last 10 years and how that has particularly victimised disabled people, people with long-term health conditions, left them without income, you know, deprived people who are terminally ill of an income and kind of left them to die, basically. Many disabled activists who were engaging with that process over the last few years talked about that in terms of eugenics, talked about that in terms of comparing it to, you know, fascist regimes in the past where um, disabled people were seen as, you know, a burden and that should be eliminated and that rather than being actually killed it was being done in a um a more um a, a, a more or less obvious way um by taking away people's ability to survive and taking away their income and at the time you know i wondered is that is that too extreme is that a fair comparison to compare it you know to, to nazi germany um and i still don't know the answer to that but we have seen then really explicit eugenicists at the heart of government, you know, government advisors who explicitly advocate for eugenics up to obviously Dominic Cummings, you know, the person that supposedly is really running the government in the UK at the current time, clearly being a person that's committed to these kind of weird and outdated um, scientific or now unscientific ideas um, that really, you know, deny the humanity of a large portion of society um, and that only value people that they see as productive and useful. So then we also saw, in terms of state disinformation, um, the idea that it's a Chinese bioweapon um, and the deliberate attempt to kind of um, make China the big other, the big enemy force that's responsible for evil in the world particularly perpetuated by um, the US government. We famously had the images from Donald Trump's press briefing where he had the script telling him to call the virus the coronavirus and he crossed that out himself to write in Chinese virus. And he made a very concerted attempt for some time to try and change the narrative and have the media refer to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, which is something that the World Health Organization and people that are experts in disease specifically try and avoid, you know, in order to prevent um, responsibility for a disease being pinned on a group of people, you know, when it's a disease rather than something that people are responsible for. But this is obviously one that's, that's, that's got out there to a lot of people. It, it's hard to imagine something as overwhelming as this happening randomly or, you know, by kind of natural forces. So you want to blame um, some kind of enemy force. And there was already a climate of escalating geopolitical tension between the US and China before this outbreak took place, a trade war and kind of Trump's rhetoric um, escalating the situation between them. So it kind of naturally kind of carries on from that. Um, it's obviously led to an upsurge of, of violence against people who are perceived to look Chinese um, in Western countries. Um, and that's, you know, again, why these kind of stories suit racist forces. You saw um, that happening spontaneously, but also 
um, racist organizations, gangs, you know, kind of violent people deliberately saying, this is fantastic. We have a reason now to go out and attack Asian people and we can encourage other people to do it, you know? So that um, is what's kind of served by really trying to pin all the blame on China for something that really the causes of it, <clears throat> as I think we'll talk about in our episode, um, are complex and are all around the world, are people who are kind of responsible for getting us into this situation. Oh, I'll just say on that as well, um, the same thing has happened back the way, not so much, but there have been figures in the Chinese government who've also put out on social media that the coronavirus is is due to being an American bioweapon and it's it's part of America against them. So again, you know, like state disinformation, conspiracy theories, they're a useful form of propaganda to demonize the enemies of a state. So you see them around around wars or around conflicts or escalations towards conflict, like we're seeing between the US and China. Crazy stories get promoted, basically. <clears throat> okay, then we've got, of course, 5G, which was kind of the big one, certainly in the UK at, at the start of the pandemic, although I think now it's kind of been folded into QAnon. And that was the idea that either 5G mobile phone internet infrastructure, which is like the latest generation of new kind of upgraded um, mobile internet, um, was causing people to become sick and it was the real cause of the pandemic, or that the pandemic had been fabricated in order to allow people to install 5G infrastructure without opposition. Um, and this one, again, is a story that has a long, long history. It goes back, at least I think, to the turn of the 20th century when um, people had fears about the emergence of radio waves and they had what they called radiophobia and they believed that radio would make you sick. Um, in the 70s, there was a large panic around power lines and that living too close to overhead power lines will cause cancer, will cause people to have a higher rate of cancer. And then, of course, mobile phones themselves, we've had various, like previous waves of people opposing the infrastructure being put in. So in the 90s, people were worried about the original mobile phone masts. And in the 2000s, people were worried about the installation of 3G mobile phone masts. And the thing to say about this is, is really, you know, there has been a very extensive scientific investigation of these issues. Um, and while you might have other reasons why you might not want there to be constant um, infrastructure or constant connectedness to the internet everywhere in the world. Um, the idea that they're really actively causing a lot of harm to people's health, that the evidence hasn't been found for it, you know? Um, and again, if you imagine how big a conspiracy that would be to conceal that many people are getting cancer because of the ubiquity of mobile phone infrastructure everywhere, um, you know, that would take a lot of people to conceal that. Um, and in fact, when you look at it, um, rates of brain cancer now are lower than they were in the early 1990s. And you would expect the opposite to have happened if the vast increase in internet infrastructure that we've seen since then was making people sick. So what I think we should say about the 5G conspiracy theory is that there are legitimate reasons why people might want to slow down the expansion of wireless internet infrastructure all around the world. Um, 
but they're not really the reasons that the conspiracy theory says you should be concerned. And in fact, that kind of actively gets in the way of us having any real discussion about real issues. So there's been really extensive study of any potential health impacts resulting from uh, mobile phones, from wireless internet, going on for decades. Um, because indeed, people have been concerned about this. As I said, going back to the first introduction of radio itself as a technology, that being exposed to electromagnetic communications could be a risk to your health. And the result of those studies pretty much, you know, conclusively across the board is that there isn't a measurable significant risk to human health posed by the kinds of technologies we've been using. Um, and again, you know, as a conspiracy theory, if you think about how many people would have to be involved in substantially concealing a cause of death, a cause of serious illness for many, many people, um, it's really not plausible to say that this is being completely covered up and there are no scientific journals or doctors, you know, um, being published going forward saying, no, actually, this is a real problem. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that it couldn't necessarily be a threat to other species, that maybe um, animals, insects, birds, that are more depend bats that are more dependent on electromagnetic fields for navigation, for finding out where they are in the world, for taking part in their migrations or hunting prey, things like that, couldn't potentially be um, affected by more human electromagnetic emissions than are already going on, and that probably should be studied and thought about more. Um, there's also obviously. Um, you know, very mundane reasons like the fact that 5G, um, the range of the installations will be quite small. And so there'll have to be a lot of them um, all over the place to cover a particular area, make sure it has full coverage. And, you know, maybe there's aesthetic reasons people don't want something near to their home being installed. Those are all legitimate things that we could have a discussion about in a democratic society about what kinds of infrastructure and technology that we want to be used around us. And there's some um, cities that have also considered the alternative of having, you know, complete blanket wireless, wireless coverage by becoming wired cities and ensuring basically all locations have access to super fast cable, you know, fiber broadband so that um, you still have, you know, a very wide availability of internet access, but there isn't necessarily the same dependence on electromagnetic radiation. But, you know, having said that, there's, you know, really not the substantial evidence there of it being a threat to human health. And these kind of wider discussions are really being um, drowned out and taken over by people who are misinformed, people who are unaware of the very long history of scientific investigation of any potential threats that might be to their health because of this kind of technology. Um, and also um, being organized by a lot of people who are not engaging in it with good faith, people who've got a financial interest, people who want to sell you 5G shielding for your clothes or your house. Um, people who are basically creating a threat and then 
posing themselves as the solution to that threat that they themselves have created. Um, and that, in that way, I think it's quite similar to the discussion we're going to come on to in a minute about um, conspiracies about child abuse, elite child abuse, which really create very elaborate and implausible fantasies of extreme um, harm coming to people and that being covered up on a huge wide scale that really comes to overshadow the real problems that we face. And in the case of, you know, child abuse, child trafficking, issues like that, all organisations and individuals that seriously engage with that kind of work, they will all tell you that they are being impacted and being drowned out and not being able to get their message across because the discussion is being dominated by people who believe in conspiracy theories, by people who've been taken in by kind of delusional fantasies, mass delusions that aren't real um, and that then distract from, uh, use up resources, take up the time of helplines and organisations, basically prevent the people who are trying to address the real problem from being able to have a real discussion about it. And I think that's a similar situation here with electromagnetic radiation, electromagnetic communications. The evidence of it being a threat to human health really just isn't there. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a discussion about how far we want the whole world to be digitized, how much we all consent to the internet of things um, and the digitization of everything that's going to come with the expansion of wireless infrastructure. Those are all things we could talk about, but instead we're getting distracted by completely fantastical nonsense. A whole lot of products you can use um, that are like um, special shields to put around your mobile phone, you know, like special protection for your home, like different th special clothing. Like a lot of the people promoting this are peddlers of alternative health products, which they say can protect you from this supposed threat. So, you know, it's again a way of exploiting people. You create a threat in people's mind and then you being the person that's put that there, you're in the, in the position to say, I have the solution, you know, and it's only 30 quid. Buy it online. It's kind of a perfect advertisement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's how much of advertising works when you think about it. it it's the same principle ex applied in an extreme way. Make people afraid that they have some need, that they have some threat to them or something that needs a product to solve it. And then you are the one to provide that solution once you've proved to them there's a problem. But I mean, the most extreme thing that came out of this that we saw earlier this year was people attacking mobile phone infrastructure because this story had spread and they believed that these 5G masks were being put up and made people sick. And so there were over 30 attacks in the UK alone. There were more in Europe as well on mobile phone masks, installations, telecommunications ins installations, um, and on staff, on, on people out putting in and repairing internet infrastructure which when you think about it like in the conditions of lockdown it's not an exaggeration to say the internet could literally be life-saving for people you know it, it really really matters that people have connection to information while they're stuck in their home and this was something that was really really dangerous to be doing uh, and it, it really is unacceptable when you think about people who are going out to ensure that infrastructure was there for the rest of us and risking infection you know putting themselves on the line and doing it then being spat on in one case um, and, you know, for having to deal with um, installations that have been burnt out. 
Um, so I think in other, in other circumstances, you know, I'm not saying we should do this, but in other circumstances, a different group of people doing similar stuff would be called terrorists. You know, we would refer to this as some kind of like low-level insurgency of something going on. Um, but it kind of flew under the radar um, and wasn't seen in that way because I guess the people doing it weren't a commonly scapegoated group or a group that powerful people in society were, were actually out to get despite what they believed themselves. Uh, then we've got everything that's happened about opposition to masks and opposition to vaccinations. The anti-vaccination movement was obviously something that has been there for a long time. And uh, its modern incarnation, it kind of goes back to the 80s when there was a discredited um, scientific paper that linked um, the measles, mumps, rubella um, vaccine to autism, which has been completely debunked since, but is a powerful idea that's still out there. But both of these things are things with a really long historical kind of pedigree. Again, they're stories that have been rebooted and repackaged. Opposition to vaccinations goes back, you know, really to when they first started. There were people that refused to get vaccinations. When the first smallpox vaccinations were brought in, you know, it carried a small risk of being infected with smallpox. And people in the cities who faced a far greater risk of dying from smallpox, making contact with infected people, were very willing to be vaccinated and to get um, to take that risk. And people that lived in the countryside and were less willing, uh, were less likely to encounter smallpox were like, well, why should I take a risk for other people? You know, um, and vaccines now are far, far safer than that. So there's less that kind of legitimate level of concern. But I think the same thing is kind of at the root of it is people are really, and certainly now after kind of decades of neoliberalism and the destruction of collective kind of ways of living, people really see things in a really individualist way. And they, they really struggle to conceive of the idea of, I have to do something as a responsibility to everyone else. We all have a collective responsibility to do something together. And that feels like an infringement of your freedom, being told what to do. And the same thing, you know, happened with masks in the past as well. In the 1918 flu pandemic, you had then the Anti-Mask League in the US, which was a group which protested against being forced to wear masks. Um, again, because they felt like, um, why should they have to do something that they were not comfortable with? You know, at that time, there was a big issue with it interfering with people being able to smoke um, when... They didn't think they would get sick. You know, I'll take my chance. Why can't I just take my chance? I'm not scared. And I think it also goes there to something about masculinity and being able to perform, you know, being not scared, being um, unintimidated by life. And there's a lot of ways that people perform masculinity by engaging in dangerous kind of life-threatening things, extreme sports or whatever. Um, and... I think for some people, putting on a mask or doing something to protect themselves from the coronavirus really feels like an admission of fear, feels like an admission of not being manly enough to get out and tough it out and not caring, you know? So um, we're going to come on now to QAnon, which is... Um, <sighs> Yeah, the, the latest um, 
kind of all-encompassing frame that all these stories we've just been talking about have kind of been folded into. And QAnon, again, was something that was around before the pandemic as well, but it's really exponentially taken off, I think, in recent weeks and become a powerful social movement, which we've seen in the UK is able to mobilise hundreds of people onto the streets of UK cities um, and is really reaching people that we would never have expected. Again, like I said earlier, like everyone I've spoken to about this is like, yeah, so-and-so, you know, in my social circle believes in this stuff now. I never would have believed that. I was talking to somebody the other day about was getting it off a taxi driver in Glasgow. So, it, you know, it's at that level of popular consciousness. It's not a fringe thing anymore. But it kind of started in, in 2017 and um, what it kind of surrounds around is um, somebody who calls themselves Q, who alleges to have Q-level special security clearance in the US, who is posting um, to anonymous message boards cryptic little messages alleging um, that really sinister things are going on, but also leaving it open to them people to try to decode what they're talking about and to create their own narratives around it. And I think that's something that, that's part of the reason why it's so powerful, is it really, um, it doesn't, although there's somebody making those initial postings, um, it's really something that doesn't have a central kind of force behind it, central person controlling it. Everyone that engages in it can become participants, people that are creating new parts of the story, do your own research, come up with your own ideas. There's a chart we're looking at here, um, which we'll include on the website, which <laughs> it shows everything that's supposed to be included within the QAnon conspiracy. And it's literally unreadable. It's, you know, like you'd have to absolutely magnify it to read any of the hundreds and hundreds of things that are on it. And it contains every conspiracy idea, every powerful person that's ever been alleged to be evil, every kind of paranormal or alternate history idea. It's kind of color-coded by theme or historical period going back to ancient history. So this is really a whole alternate narrative of what's going on in the world. And what that narrative is, is basically uh, <laughs> that there are kind of evil entities, other beings, demonic creatures controlling the world. And that most powerful politicians and celebrities you can think of are actually these evil creatures in disguise. Um, and that they control everything that happens in the world as part of a conspiracy to kidnap and sexually abuse children and to drink their hormones in order to enhance their own power. Um, and if people are familiar with the stories of anti-Semitism, what I kind of referred to before, one of the kind of core anti-Semitic stories going back historically was the blood libel. And that was the idea that Jews murder Christian children and mix their, their blood into Passover bread as part of their religious celebrations. And I would really say this is like the blood libel rebooted, you know, like it's the latest version of that mixed with mid 20th century science fiction. Um, Robert Guffey, again, who I talked about earlier, he has an article where he breaks down how a lot of the ideas can be traced back to science fiction stories that were published in pulp magazines in the 1940s. 
by an author who indeed had these elaborate fantasies of being kidnapped and tortured by demonic creatures. And his story was, the way he presented it, was that this had happened to him and he'd escaped. Um, but he wrote them as fiction. Um, but when they went out into the world, people read these stories and they said, yes, this has happened to me. Like, the story itself became powerful enough to convince many people that not only was this reality, this is something that had happened to them. And they took on a life of their own. Um, and, you know, he received communications from many, many people who were like, thank you for exposing what's really going on. And this kind of story has been took again and again, repackaged, rebooted, used to to stigmatize um, political enemies of the people behind this conspiracy. And to understand who those political enemies are, um, the core of the story is, is that Donald Trump is some kind of heroic secret agent, special force, who is the only one in power in public life who's working to expose this uh, conspiracy, this powerful elite, um, and that everything he does, everything everything he says and everything he does can be interpreted in that context, and that he's some kind of secret hero um, waiting to save the world. So it's you shouldn't be surprised then that the, the main people who it targets as being these demonic beings are the enemies of Donald Trump. You know, it's Democrats, Hillary Clinton, also kind of liberal celebrities are a common target for them. Um, and I think that points to this one again is the people behind it are really, really cynical. And it's definitely been a clearly politically motivated operation to support Donald Trump. And the way it's grown and the extent it's grown to, I think we can't predict at this stage what impact it's going to have on the presidential election and how many people believing this is going to maybe influence whether he's re-elected or not. Certainly there are many candidates standing for elected office in the US who support QAnon, one of whom in Georgia, who's got through the primary to be the Republican candidate in a district that's very likely to elect her, so is likely to be a QAnon supporting a Congress person come the election. Um, and I think it's spread, you know, it's something that's took very much advantage of the mechanics of the internet and something I think that understands how social media algorithms work and also understand how gamification and game mechanics work. Because um, I've seen a few people analyze QAnon who work in immersive alternate reality games is what they design. And they recognize this as something that uses the same techniques. In particular, they talk about the way that um, the Q figure puts these anonymous posts out there at an irregular interval, so you never know quite when they're coming, and they're little tidbits of information that people have to work on themselves, and compares them basically to the rewards you get in a game, you know, getting gold, leveling up. Like, the addictive mechanism of having an irregular reward that you can't predict when it's going to come means that if you don't know when you're going to get the thing you want out of engaging that experience, you're going to keep doing it all day, because you don't want to miss the time you might win. You know, you want to be online, the time that the conspiracy drop comes through. So it's really an addictive process that people engage with it on a small scale. And then um, the mechanics of the internet, um, recommendations, algorithms, will push them towards more and more of this content. And that's also supported by the fact that there's huge amounts of bots, you know, and like not real 
um, social media accounts constantly retweeting uh, and pushing attention towards these stories so that they rank higher in algorithms, so that they look more significant to Google and so that they get recommended to more people. And yeah, that that's really, it's, it's grown to an extreme extent during the pandemic. Um, the last few weeks, we've seen hundreds of people outside the Scottish Parliament um, demonstrating against a future lockdown with, you know, lots of QAnon stuff really prominent there. There was a big demonstration in Trafalgar Square in London. There was also um, a crowd outside Buckingham Palace chanting paedophiles about Prince Andrew and his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein, which, you know, again, indeed, I think Prince Andrew should face justice for the things that it seems like he's done. But um, this movement, like it can work with things like that, that are real, that really get people's attention and disturb people and use that to like push people towards a wider narrative. In this case, a narrative, which ultimately the story is that Donald Trump is a hero, which is the most, you know, kind of unbelievable and bizarre bit of the whole story is the idea that Donald Trump would be opposed to sexual abuse, would be an opponent of these things really happening in real life when, you know, it's well known that he associated with Jeffrey Epstein and um, Ghislaine Maxwell, who worked with Jeffrey Epstein, when she was arrested, Trump wished her well publicly, you know? So the idea that he's some kind of crusader against sexual violence is really, like, completely implausible. And I think goes back to what we were saying at the start about immune to evidence, contradictory facts, like, that does not make sense. I guess it also goes back to the like the traits of the conspirational thinking, right? Because what you said before, Jack, was that one of the traits is that they use really violent imagery and with that they traumatize you. And I guess like one of like the main things that QAnon are doing is like going around with like vans of like children who have been allegedly abused or like they have like very like uh, violent like content on their uh, Facebook page. And I guess this to somebody who sees it for the first time, it's really traumatizing. People want justice to that. And it kind of makes sense to a certain level. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think this is the clearest example you could see of that dynamic of people being exposed to the most horrific material. I would also say, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but there's something psychologically there about producing this kind of material and constantly sharing it that... Is it fair to say that everyone that engages in this is coming from a place of, of pure disgust or is, doesn't have conflicted feelings? You know, in some ways, it actually becomes a legitimate way where you can consume this kind of material and you can look at these kind of stories uh, and then say, well, I'm looking at it because I'm horrified and I, I don't want to like it, you know? So I, I, I think indeed it's about traumatizing people, but I think there's also some... <laughs> This supposed crusade to stop abuse of children, I think it absolutely does the opposite. You know, and that that's the thing that's most damaging about it, I think, is that all organisations and people seriously engaged in the work of trying to prevent child abuse say that this is massively harmful. This is massively detracted from what they're really trying to do because all of their helplines, all of their outlets are completely overwhelmed with people talking QAnon false nonsense you know save the children the charity in the uk 
their social media presence currently is being drowned out by the fact that Save the Children is a QAnon slogan. So they're a long-established, large organisation that does real work to support children being completely drowned out by people falsely claiming to be helping children. And again, there's all types of cynical operators within that, you know, like people printing T-shirts that say Save the Children and people will buy that and think that they're in some way contributing to helping someone. And you're not, you're making profit for a QAnon merchandiser, you know, like it, it's completely, completely cynical. Um, and I think it, it's, you know, it's being clearly done to influence um, things politically in the US and around the world towards the far right. So we want to finish this discussion today by trying to give some advice to people who know anybody who's going through this process at the moment. People who are looking at the internet, they're looking for answers, and they're going through this conspiratory thinking. Um, so Jack, what are your suggestions for somebody who might know somebody close to them or an acquaintance and they're starting having this chat, they're starting talking about this, QAnon or maybe another line of conspiracy theory, what would you say is the most effective way to talk to this person? I mean, I think it's very difficult. Um, and I think you need to seriously consider whether you're talking to the person, you know, whether you have the capacity to engage with them in a way that's useful. Because like I said earlier, when someone is um, engaged with a delusional belief that they've come up with themselves or, you know, a kind of large scale delusion with lots of other people, if you try and combat that head on and be like, you are talking nonsense, that's not true. All that you do is focus that belief onto yourself, make yourself like the face of the people fighting against that person, trying to oppress them. Um, and it's well known in conspiracy communities, in religious communities, in, in groups that want to make themselves hard on the inside, believing in a belief that goes against what everyone else in society believes, that being stigmatised and attacked like that hardens people into the group. I mean, um, churches that want to reinforce people being part of their um, part of their group, they are often the ones that send people onto the street to do street proselytising. And they know that people will face people ridiculing them, telling them to shut up, telling them they're stupid, laughing at them. And they know that experience will only harden their commitment to the group. So that's a real threat, I think, if you approach this in the wrong way, is that it has exactly the opposite effect and you harden the person into uh, opposition. And, you know, it's a reality that this is really negatively impacting relationships, thousands of relationships and people's families and causing people to have to cut each other off, which is really, really painful and a sad thing. Um, and I would only advise trying to fight it, you know, if it's someone that you really feel like you have the possibility of a connection with, someone you have some history with, someone you really care about. So if you were going to approach it, what I'd say, the stages I'd say, like, first of all, um, indeed, by the time you're talking to someone who's heavily engaged, it's too late, you know. So a lot of the work you can do to try and prevent this spreading is preventative medicine. And that's kind of instead of debunking, like pre-bunk yourself, like educate yourself about conspiracy and far-right tropes, anti-Semitic ideas and common um, images that they put about, and learn about the stuff we were talking about at the start, about how you can tell the difference between a conspiracy theory story and a legitimate piece of research into what's really going on. So make yourself aware and less susceptible. And the more people that do that, the more indeed we will build up 
some kind of herd immunity to being overly affected by conspiracy theories. But if you are trying to approach someone that's really committed to this, then I'd suggest doing it with a lot of caution and only under the basis that you know that you have the emotional energy and time and resources within yourself to really be empathetic and to be gentle and to try and meet them where they're at. So, you know, the first thing to do is to try and establish common ground. Um, and that could be, if you're trying to do it directly around what you're actually talking about, agreeing on, you know, things are wrong in the world. There's clearly some bad stuff going on. I don't really understand why that is. Why do you think it is? Why do I think it is? And gently trying to move in that direction. Or it could also just be, you know, trying to remind someone of your shared history and your relationship and why it is you care about them by talking about happy memories, things outside of the whole conspiracy theory frame to try and keep that connection with them and to stop them being distanced from you the more they harden into an extreme belief. But if you can establish that initial rapport, then think about how you can gently start to question the narratives that they're part of. And, you know, a good way to do that is to ask people about where they heard things, what their sources are, and to say, oh, could you show that to me? And then try and gently say, you know, is do we think this, this website is a legitimate website? Do you think this is a useful source of information? Here's why I'm a bit suspicious about it, you know, and try and basically portray it as you are also engaging in a, a spirit of, I'm trying to find out what's going on. I'm willing to do research. I'm willing to be convinced. Um, and that, you know, you're open to being convinced by the person you're speaking to. You're engaging in good faith with their arguments. But indeed, you know, keeping that up and not losing your cool and not snapping and saying, this is totally wrong, you know, this is nonsense, you're mad, is very, very difficult for most people to do. I know that I struggle to have that kind of resource in arguing with people to keep that level of empathy up. So I think it's important to know when to give up you know, and when it's not worth even trying, when indeed your efforts will be counterproductive. And there's not really much that can be said about that on an individual level. When someone's that far gone, there's not much you can do to help them. So indeed, ultimately, the best things we can do is educating ourselves and pre-bunking, like I said, but basically building up alternative social forces, like different kinds of communities, spaces where people can come together or be part of something that are not the conspiracy community. So, you know, building community organisations, being involved in the community, building trade unions, social movements, campaigns, any kind of environment that's going to draw people in where they're going to be exposed to, to useful factual information and education about what's really going on in the world. Like, I think a lot of people that are interested in this show are going to be involved in projects or things like that. And that's really... That's ultimately the best thing we can do is that on an individual level, it's very difficult to help people. And so the best thing we can do is try and act preventatively and build up our immunity and the strength of society that we're not taken in by people that are trying to trick us, people that are trying to exploit us or manipulate us, and that people have outlets to try and get a handle on what's really going on. Thanks so much for joining Radical Animals. Check the description for links for some resources about how to approach conspiracy thinkers. If you want to find out more about this topic, we recommend the Anthill podcast, an expert guide to conspiracy theories. Our episodes will be uploaded on Spotify and SoundCloud. 
You can keep in touch with us on Twitter at radical underscore animals and please tell us your thoughts on our first episode. Join us for our next exciting episode where our guest Adam Ramsey will talk about rewilding the Scottish Highlands, renewables and the role of the beaver in all this.